It's Kurt from Kurt's World. Kurt from Kurt's World here. Here from Kurt's World. It's Kurt from Kurt's World. Like it's Kurt from Kurt's World. It's Kurt from Kurt's World. Kurt from Kurt's World here. It's Kurt from Kurt's World. Kurt here from Kurt's World. Kurt from Kurt's World here. Kurt here from Kurt's World. It's Kurt from Kurt's World. I hold the taco bowl and you cried over Eugene. He was mean. He was mean. I hold the taco bowl and you cried. So I guess I'll pretend that it's not me, and then we'll bring in... Yeah, I'll pretend that you're not Eugene, and then we'll interview Eugene, right? We, we should get Arthur. No, so we'll call Arthur in, and then Arthur will act like a third person. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because we have to continue to confuse everybody and deflect that, it's, that we're not Eugene. All right, bring him in. All right, I'm sending the link. I hold the Taco Bell and you cried over Eugene. He was mean. I hold the Taco Bell and you cried over Eugene. He was mean. Yeah, I can't deal. Yeah, I can't deal. Yeah, I can't deal. You hold the Taco Bell and you cried over Eugene, he was mean. Alright, I'm just waiting for him to join. I hold the Taco Bell and you cried over Eugene, he was mean. Bro. You smile with your teeth, that Eugene. You I can't do. <laughs> <laughs> your teeth at Eugene. He was mean. I hold the taco bell and you smile with your teeth at Eugene. He was mean. He was mean. I, I wish you would step back from that ledge, Eugene. <laughs> well, that's actually so sick. We make like make an entire album of covers of Eugene like in multiple different styles <laughs> I wish you would step well, back we should from actually that do that <laughs> we should actually do that like release releasing like spending the majority of our time for the rest of the year Wait, like, we could cut ties with all the lies that you've been living in <laughs> comic <that makes> sense <laughs> and if you do not want to see me I would understand. <laughs> it makes sense. Oh, I just changed one I name. I definitely would like to never see Eugene again. <laughs> yeah, so Mike, if, if you would never like to see me again, I'd understand, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're both going to be better off. <laughs> Where the fuck is he? I know this is always the shit. Because I mean, I'm here to sell my movie. This is a commercial for the movie. Make no mistake. This is a commercial right. for my movie. 
talking, I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking. There he is. I'm talking. Sorry, guys. I'm still, I still gonna need one second, but uh, I'm, I'm really sorry. What is his music? <laughs> oh, this would be the song Eugene by Arlo Parks. Oh, God. Horrible <laughs> shit. <laughs> Oh, fuck. I'm bobbing my head right now. <laughs> I love this. He was mean? Yeah. He was mean. Those oh, lyrics. Fuck. That's I, what a bad reputation. That's what we were saying. I think the only two songs in the history of music that say Eugene are this and uh, I Want to Be Creative About the Iron Pack. No, there, no, no. There is a really annoying, or like not even annoying, but just like whatever. It's like something called... Um, what is it? Fucking Nouvelle Vague or something like that. Um, it's like bad, like 90s indie lounge music, but weirdly like a song that like some random Gen X person will sometimes mention to me. What's well, <laughs> it called, Eugene? It's called Eugene. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> some, there's like a, that's like enough to start a playlist. Yeah, Give, three. Yeah, three yeah. great Eugene songs. Yeah, I mean, I love. I want to be a creative. I think that's a wonderful song. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's like you know. I mean, cream of the crop. I think that is like one of the sicknesses of our era, the sort of illusion that a few different things sold um, millennials and those younger on the idea that they were inherently like creative. I mean, on some level, all people are inherently creative, but. Um, the idea that your creativity like could be somehow vital or yeah. a huge part of your identity right. or really an important contribution to the world is, you know, hopefully a lot of people my age and even younger are getting serious wake up calls about this now. Right. Uh, where, do you, where do you fit into that? Where do I fit into that? Yeah. I, I, um, you know, hold my creativity with, I don't know what the fuck is going on in this recording. I hold my creativity with, with great, with great creativity comes great responsibility. You know, like I don't really consider myself an inherently creative person. I consider myself an analytical person who has the desire to express things that are based on his observations and hopefully new. So I think the biggest responsibility for any creative person is to do something that is new or that will, you know, engage people in, in a meaningful way. So those are my goals. Um, obviously, the, I chose movies over, I don't know, music or art, fine art or whatever. So I have a different, um, there's a different prerequisite to that, which is that it has to be entertaining because movies are, you know, like a mass medium, a commercial medium. And so in my attempts to be analytical and unique and say something new, I also have to be entertaining. So that's how I view um, the creative um, whatever sickness that has overcome, um, you know, most people under the age of 40 in, uh, you know, the social media so world. So you're saying that people are kind of oversold on how important or profound their creativity is? Um, I'm saying that the parameters and like sort of framework of um, social media and, you know, like early MySpace and even the AOL profile is that inherent to your identity and to the kind of like 
creation and communication of who you are as a person, um, you started to do things that felt, um, you know, aesthetically creative, right? So an AOL profile was about picking font color and what capitalization and all these weird gifts and shit. And then as that evolved in things like MySpace and Facebook and Instagram, which was very explicitly about aesthetics, um, and, you know, just sort of like the, the, the constantly writing and visualizing who you are as a person or what interests you as a person. And this quote unquote feels like the old definition of creativity, right? The old definition of creativity was like, okay, you're creative if you find different ways to express yourself. And so now we all do that, you know, just to basically exist. We all find ways to express ourselves on these mediums. And so people, you know, are, are, are deluded into the belief that they are creative when all they're really doing is trafficking in a sort of transactional, highly social environment where if they don't traffic in that, they basically don't even exist. I mean, this is a line from the movie, right? right. Yeah, I was, was going to say. Yeah. So do you think that, like, the desire to be creative no matter the medium, is that a a Kurt sentiment? Well, I think Kurt's main sentiment is to be um, popular and viral, and he's going to do it by being helpful because he, you know, there's something about the tutorial that seems like morally upright or something right. like that, you know? I think, well, something that's, I want to just circle back to something that you said about movies being uh, designed for entertainment. And I wanted to ask you if you feel like the character of Kurt has anything to do with you and your own personality and your own drive to put yourself out there. Because I have one of the things I admire about all of the movies of yours that I've seen is that they are very entertaining. And I know that you obviously have very specific tastes when it comes to things that you probably consume. And it's always been interesting to me that your movies feel so designed to appeal to any any person who could possibly be watching it yeah a few things um so the movies that i think are the best ever are movies that have really unique or bold form you know formal decisions stylistic decisions uh, have a unique sort of language to them, whether it be visual or sound or just structurally, and at the same time are just really fun to watch. Um, and, you know, those sorts of things to me are kind of the highest level films. So that could range anything from like, you know, early sound cinema, like a movie like Love Me Tonight that was doing something with sound and camera movement that really hadn't been done a lot, uh, with, like the musical, or it can be a movie like Nashville, where you're going through all the different characters and all those different soundscapes. And again, thinking about ways to synthesize multiple storylines and music. Um, it can be like an Edward Yang movie, where you really are uh, restraining the camera, what the camera is able to do, but you're still really talking about fun, interesting, provocative things. It can be, you know, whatever, Night of the Living Dead or, um, Train spotting, like train spotting, is a movie that basically does not have a normal structure, right? It's like one anecdote after another, and 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 that is the sort of episodic thing that gets really boring really fast. Except every single fucking scene in that movie has a great visual idea or a great a sort of music idea, has a great kind of formal idea to it that is strong enough to make that scene rock on its own. 
and within the context of the greater set of like sort of anecdotal bits, you know? So, so anyway, those are the sort of movies that I just feel like, you know, I like, and that's the sort of movies that I would like to make. And of course there are other movies that I like too, that have like one or two elements that I like, but those are sort of like the, the apex of what I think good filmmaking is where it's like fun to watch, but you could just see creativity happening in every kind of element of it, you know? Right. In terms of like formal innovation, in terms of like making a movie, um, I'm, I'm curious where you might have been at when you made something like A Wonderful Cloud versus Wobble Palace, which is obviously using a lot of like iMessage, you know, framing and Spree, which is using more like, you know, social media framing um, as as like a formal tactic towards telling the story. Um but where, where, like, did you think a lot about, like, formally how you would communicate ideas back before, you know, messaging and social media came into the, into the screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me actually, okay, I'll answer your question and I'll say something else. So, you know, my first movie, um, two movies, which actually predate A Wonderful Cloud, um, one is called Zeros and Ones. Yeah. which is all, uh, it's about a guy who loses his computer and has to figure out who stole it. And the whole movie is told through uh, computer screens. So uh, programs and games and websites and is all literally graphic design from scratch and animated to be told through um, those types of things that you would just organically natively see on your computer, whether it's your email or a game of solitaire. And when we you know, we shot obviously every scene, we embedded video into all of those elements. Sometimes in a way that made sense, like a fake MySpace page had an embedded video element um, and other ways that, you know, are just very sort of creative, but not, don't really formally make sense of how you see things on a computer screen. And at the same time as I was making that movie, which is a whole big production with a lot of people who volunteered their time and energy and took three years, I also made a movie basically by myself with just my friends called Skydiver, which was all webcam conversations through Skype and Gchat, uh, Gchat uh, G video. And that was literally me just screen capturing as those conversations took place. And I was like kind of trolling everyone and they didn't know I was trolling. Um, so those things were really on my mind when I made those films in 2009, 2010. Um, and there wasn't really like the sort of response from any sort of established film community, whether it was mainstream or even, you know, sort of like New York art house film or independent film community to that film. I didn't really get the reaction that I wanted from those films. There was some interest in the art community, but I wasn't really interested in that. So for my next films, I did a web series after that, but for Wonderful Cloud, um, you know, I wanted to just do something that wasn't so um, fixated on the relationship that people have with their phones and with their computers and with how technology fucked things up. However, that film starts off with old iPhone footage, right. um, you know, recapitulating like the relationship that's being examined um, in the was, film. That was real footage. That, uh, those are real videos, right? Those are real videos from years earlier about the relationship that, you know, for like it was a relationship between the actors, myself and Kate Scheel, but then it was sort of recontextualized as to be a relationship between the characters, Kate and Eugene, who are in the movie. You know, when you don't have resources, you figure out ways to use the things that are available to you in your life as an interesting form of storytelling, you know, um, material. 
So that's what that's all about. And then in the film, you can see Kate's character constantly filming and mediating her experiences, um, hanging out with Eugene through her phone. So there's mm. film footage there. And then for Wonderful Cloud, I wanted to take it further. So that starts off with a text message conversation. So you see the screen. And, you know, when we were filming, I was like, look, we're going to put the, the phone screen up during this scene and this scene and this scene. And, you know, Sean Price Williams, who shot that, and a few other crew members were like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, just trust me, like, leave room. Don't center this. Like, leave room, uh, you know, empty space um, on the edge of the right edge of screen because we're going to put a phone there. And so um, that was, um, you know, how I was thinking about that. But I had already been writing Spree when we made A Wonderful Cloud. Uh, well, sorry, when we made Wobble Palace. Um, anyway, this shit's always on my mind, to answer your question. I'm always thinking about this stuff and how to integrate you know, our relationships with, uh, with technology into the movies because you know, technology isn't just a fucking car or a typewriter or a spaceship now. Technology is like a screen that you use to understand your existence you know, and the existence of those around you. And you're constantly looking at video elements there so it's the most native um screen for storytelling there is so you know i would be stupid to ignore that and you know um a bit of a a loser to not try to exploit it or try to incorporate it into film language you know right Uh, but going back to what you were saying about um your earlier films not eliciting the reaction that Mm -hmm. you wanted uh, i sent some of that in the character of Kurt and, uh-huh. <laughs> and like getting the yeah. re, you know making something to get the reaction that you want which is i saw i saw the movie at a festival and then i watched it again when you sent us the link and i think the first time i saw it i was a little frightened by it because i was like oh man is this eugene like this is does he want this reaction this badly and then the second time i saw it i was like wow it's a really poignant commentary on that sort of primal urge but i wanted to hear like i you know i appreciate all of those formal innovations that you use when you edit these movies but I'm, I'm curious how much you think some of that is connected to wanting people to pay attention wanting people to uh you know watch and share well okay so i think there is a little bit of kurt in all of us like that is my intention with the character and i think joe keery who plays kurt pulls it off really well and that he has a certain like pathos and you know, he's obviously cringy and monstrous, but he's also like, you know, like there's something kind of naive and charming and really sad about him in a way that I think is really relatable. So I do think like we all can understand that impulse to want to be loved and given attention on the predominant, you know, sort of platforms for that, which we all kind of virtually coexist in. Um, Of course, I feel that, you know, as a person trying to, quote unquote, be a creative. Let me just go back to that. So the reason we were talking about the creative thing, right, is because you guys made a song uh, that's like a rip on the Ramones, I want to be sedated, saying I want to be a creative. And the reason I love that song is because that sort of mindless, um, you know, approach to creative, to being a creative, quote unquote, is not just something that like, oh, I'm a director, I'm a graphic designer, I'm a creative director, I'm a career, I'm a yucky, I'm a creator. It is something that is pervasive, even subconsciously, in almost everyone's minds, um, that they are a creator, that people, that people should admire them for their creativity. So that's why I like the song, because it was so stupid and obvious and campy and called out people's just sort of casual attitude toward their own existence as creative yeah it's like you know they're like 
they're using it to sedate themselves. Yeah, but also it's just such a big part of like, you know, hipster culture, which could trickle down into normie culture once these social media platforms sort of like became, you know, um, ubiquitous. Like, um, anyway, so yeah, I think Kurt's desire to go viral or to be relevant or to be the center of a narrative is a desire we all have. The reason that I did those incorporated those things on a conceptual level and a production level and an editing level into my films is not um, because I thought it'd be a cool gimmick to get attention. If, if I was smart enough, I would have figured out how to do that. I really, my impulse is that I think the way people approach filmmaking, generally speaking, is extremely derivative on a visual level and on a storytelling level. And I don't want to be doing shit that is derivative. I would like to be doing stuff that is new, that is expanding, like a medium that I care about. And right. so my challenge to me is like, how can I do something new that still is accessible enough to be entertaining, that still makes people feel in a way that they, you know, are acclimated to feeling when they watch a movie. That, that you know anyone can kind of watch and be whoa this is fucking new and exciting and and fucking in my face but still feel like you know all of the sort of laughs and thrills and emotions you want people to feel in like a popular film right so you know? it's so kind of like i think what you're saying is like well especially from you who's someone who clearly is for lack of a better term a cinephile and just like a student of filmmaking in general but you seem to be taking the opposite approach as a lot of people like that as and like you understand the art so well so you want to do something that is kind of the opposite of it instead of following the tropes that everyone you learned from did like you, well, want, okay. like you want this you want to watching this to be a different experience than watching all of your favorite movies is what you're saying i want to capture the spirit of creativity and innovation that has characterized like to me all of the best history of filmmaking right? right like so when i made zeros and ones i was like i don't even fucking like antonioni and i think godard is like super overrated but i want to capture what i think is the fucking like energy and philosophy behind what those filmmakers were doing in 1960 yeah exactly so I want to say, how do I update that energy? Not the stylistic choices, not the fucking tracking shots or the, the I'm going to fuck with how music interplays with the, with the scene or anything. They already did that. I'm not trying to redo that. I'm just trying to capture the innovative spirit yeah, of what that was. I think was, we said you know? this on the pod before, but I, I, was, I was making this comparison to music where I was like, if you love, I don't know, say you love like 70s rock music, if you just try to like do those guitar sounds and that vocal style and whatever that the reason you love that music is not because of those sounds it's because of what those choices and sounds and let lent itself to the song craft so think about like the relationship between the song craft and the sounds and that's what you should be going for instead of the sounds yeah, like there's someone out there who could like be really into fucking Brian Eno and find a great way to like copy the Brian Eno palette and like, you know, delivery and all that stuff. And that music would probably turn out pretty good. Like I might even listen to it, but you will not be the next Brian Eno just right. because you emulate Brian Eno, you know? Yeah, like if you like copy a bunch of Depeche Mode synth sounds, you're not going to make Depeche Mode. Think about why those synth sounds worked for those songs and what that yeah why that impacted the music and think about that relationship and take that learn from that instead of the kind of nuts and bolts of the, the craft 
Yeah. That's I, I, I definitely agree with, with all those sentiments. I guess my question about that as regards to movies is, is the, is the innovation or is the most modern thing you can do, you know, implement, you know, because when I first saw iMessage, it's not in Wobble Palace, but even before that, maybe in on like, maybe like Night Hunter or Mind Hunter or something, um, or like maybe Social Network. I remember like cringing at it and it was, I was very uncomfortable seeing something so modern on the screen. Um, whereas when I saw something like Night of Cups, which just felt like really free, free form and the way that it was using footage, footage from different cameras felt really exciting. I guess my question is, do you think that there's other things that you might explore that might be innovative outside of social media framing and, and using the screen as a, a screen into the screens of our lives kind of thing? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, sure. Like I am interested in like long take stuff. I think basically no one it's, I've seen very few films that have been able to like, kind of like pull off the long take thing in a way that's like actually entertaining. Um, especially with the static camera, obviously you can think of movies like, well, I think like 1917 was actually pretty bad, but like maybe like children of men or something like that. You know, but when it comes to like a static camera, I mean, that stuff is truly pretty bad. Um, but I do think somehow you can brainwash viewers through that slow build and you actually might be able to do something really thrilling and horrifying and like manipulative with that. Because I've had experiences with like the most experimental structural films, which have no narrative, like, you know, like Michael Snow or Hollis Frampton films, which have no narrative elements, but they have fucked with me on a psychological level because that stuff trains your mind on how to view and how to look at things. And then when it subverts that you feel like fucked. Actually, one of my, one of the movies I always go to bat for, which was able to do this almost unintentionally, I would say, and is also the greatest, it's one of the greatest structural films and one of the greatest mumblecore films, I think both unintentionally, is um, Paranormal Activity. I like love that, Paranormal Activity. That is a movie, yeah, that movie's sick. It uses a formal conceit of like a guy trying to document um, this haunting that his wife um, is, is, is cer- certain is happening in the house. And then he just constantly like a total piece of shit mocks her. And, you know, there's a lot of static cameras set up there and it's a kind of boring mumblecore examination of like a broken, like mis- like misogynistic relationship um, where he's like gaslighting her and stuff. And then every once in a while they'll jolt the static camera and you'll be scared. I mean, like, you know, and I don't know if those formal ideas were intentional in that film, but it really, really works. Yeah. Um, well, also another thing I want to say though, so I, I, when I first saw Spree, was with you back last summer, and it was still not a final cut, so none of the social media interface was in it yet. So mm-hmm. I feel like I, and then I saw it again when you sent the the screener, and that was my first time seeing the whole interface. So I. I got to see it without the kind of uh, screen element that you're talking about, which was kind of, to you, really integral to the whole experience of watching the movie. But the movie still worked a lot for me, which I think is kind of what we were saying. I think it it has the kind of, it has the narrative arc, but it also has the characters. It has the, um, just the kind of accessibility and uh, 
like oomph that you that you need like we're saying the kind of relationship between the between the tropes and the uh actual craft of yeah. the story i mean it, hopefully it, the movie's fucking there. fun and people fucking watch it and they laugh and they get scared or like shocked every once in a while and then it's over and they're like oh that was fucking sick what was that about <laughs> or they say whoa i don't want to look at my phone because i know there's something evil about looking at my right, phone right after right. this movie well, I guess that's what so, like the, there, the the kind of the message the story is is there is what I'm really saying which is no which no is, but what I'm is saying good. is yeah of course I want people to just be entertained by it and not think about like oh fuck how long did it take him to write all of these comments right or like, right, right good job graphic designing the spree app or whatever you know right what is the what is the reaction that you you want from this movie I think it's cool that you're doing the drive-in thing given the the nature of what the movie's about and like just releasing it in this way like how, what are your feelings about putting a movie out right now well um you know for a small movie that doesn't have a lot of budget for marketing and promotion i mean it's you know a blessing in disguise to be out in a um you know release landscape that has no you know studio competition right so for a while it looked like tenet was going to be released a few days before Spree. So Spree's being released August 14th um, on VOD and at drive-ins. And for a while, it seemed like Tenet was going to be released August 12th. Now, when they realized theaters weren't going to open back up in LA and New York, they nixed that, which, you know, created the current situation. So like, yeah, I think it's, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen with the movie. I pray that a lot of people see it. I don't have any illusions that a lot of people will. Um, but it certainly helps that there isn't really any major studio competition for like a few weeks after that as of now. So hopefully it ends up building momentum and people talk about it and people talk about Joe's performance and like the unique thing that we did and like, whoa, this is, movie is funny. This movie is fucked up. I mean, you know, I, I haven't ever made anything that's made any real dent on Mm, you know, popular culture. I didn't want to say mainstream culture. I just mean like popular culture, right? Like the culture writers and sort of like Twitterati. Like no one really cares about my previous work beyond like maybe some niche people in New York and LA and all of a sudden random people in Australia. Um, but, but um, no, big so yeah, I, just, I wanted to have some impact, you know? Um, do, do you think watching it VOD as opposed to in theaters will enhance it? Well, I think, look, if you can watch it at a drive-in, it's super cool because the whole fucking movie, you know, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what this movie is about, it's about a rideshare driver, like an Uber driver, but in our movie, the app is called Spree. So a Spree driver who wants to go viral because he's so desperate for social media attention. And so he decides to live stream his rides um, and kill them. Right. So it's him going on a rampage and it's sort of, uh, well, you'll see it, but it's a satire of like our desire to be, you know, irrelevant in a social media landscape. Um, Watching a movie that largely takes place in a car from your car, I think would be a fucking really interesting experience for people who can, who can go to a drive-in. When I was sitting there writing 7,000 comments for all of the people commenting on Kurt's live stream, um, I, wanted it to be like if you're watching this at home and you rented it and you're watching it on your computer or on tv i want you to be able to pause it at any time and read all the comments and see how they completely 
work for that moment in time. Yeah. Like every single comment should be funny or informational or just realistic on what like some random ass troll or viewer could be saying. And that is a big part of the realism for me. So I do think someone watching it at home has that, you know, sort of luxury. Um, you know, it's a, it's a realistic movie. So in that way, it kind of, kind of feel more scary watching it at home. Like, you know, like I think a lot of teenagers are going to watch it. And I remember watching things like Clockwork Orange or something like that when I was a teenager and being like, wow, I really shouldn't be allowed to be seeing this when I'm, you know, 13 years old. Like it feels illegal almost to watch this or something. And I do feel like that movie had a huge impact on my life in a way. And I, 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 I hope this film, which is a similar type of morality tale about like the danger of you seeing attention as a kind of bottom line to your existence, um, could have an effect like that on a lot of teenagers and realizing like, hey, like we need to fucking step away from this shit because it's 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 making us feel twisted, and you know. Yeah, I've I've complimented you on it before, but yeah, I think the the comment writing and all of the text in the movie specifically did feel very uh, alive as like a narrative world building kind of thing that that did feel genuinely new and exciting and and kind of dangerous in in a way that um, really brought the movie to life for me and. You, you crushed that. It's funny that you say you've complimented me before because, you know, the elephant in the room in this whole conversation, right, is that um, you guys are the Ion Pack, and a lot of people since the Ion Pack was born have thought that Eugene, me, is the Ion Pack. Um, <laughs> is and, it not? Well, I think it's funny that, you know, we keep doing this thing where you're saying, oh, we told you this or I saw your movie or whatever. But really, there's no way for an audience member who's listening to this podcast to know that we didn't just get a third person on the show to pretend to be Eugene or to pretend to be one of the other um, Packers. <laughs> and then like the Packer who is Eugene is speaking now outside of his role as a Packer and is now speaking in his role as like the naked Eugene. Right. You well know? People yeah, don't even know, for all like, and I it's think me. People have gotten a slight glimpse behind the curtain that the Ion Pack is a giant corporate enterprise. So, I think it's like I'm sure people assume that maybe even the voices of the Ion Pod aren't even the Ion Pack, and we're just people that Eugene, the Ion Pack, hired. Right, exactly. Like the actual Ion Pack is so busy making the meme content and some of the other secret things that the Ion Pack does, that they actually need to farm out the podcast right. to some other entities who also have more experience podcasting and such. Yeah. Things that Eugene is all, all good at, to farming out the work to, you know, for a, a greater a greater good. Well, I can't believe there's no comments from the Ion Pack in Spree. I'm really disappointed in that, I gotta tell you. <laughs> I, I tried not to use, I tried to not use any accounts of oh, you, real, you used, of real you used, people. Uh, you used Honor's account. Yeah, but she was like there with me sometimes when I was writing it and... You that's know, what I like, saw her. And also, and also Honor, it was the social media consultant on the film, like going into the film. Like she was the one who had the idea to do um, the Draw My Life video meme uh, as a nice. sort of character building exercise for Joe. She was the one who suggested I cast Josh Ovi as Bobby. And Josh had a really great Vining um, career. Oh, that dude so, crushes it. Big shouts to Honor. Yeah, big shouts to Honor who uh, brought so much to the table on the film. And, uh, of course, I uh, did put her 
Instagram handle there because when I was writing the comments, she was there. She said, "I'm writing this." One. I, I saw her. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I saw her name pop up, and I was like, "That's why." I was like, "Wait a minute, why is there not an Ion comment?" Well, I don't know. Do you guys think you'd be watching something so horrific? <laughs> yeah. Probably. Okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> wait, I had another. I had another question. Uh, so yeah. you said that. Um. I guess you will have had to see the movie to, to really understand this question, but uh, like for people listening, but you said- Who is this for, by the way? Like, shouldn't we be kind of like, like, shouldn't we be kind of trying to convince people the movie's really good? There's a lot right, of- I was just thinking, we didn't even really on. like set it up. So I'm probably going to go back after this and record a little intro, but- mm -hmm, yeah, do that. Uh, but you said there's a little bit of Kurt in everyone. Yeah. So if Kurt is everyone- Yes. Then who is Jesse? Well, Jesse is like kind of like acceptable Kurt, right? So like, for instance, right. so Jesse is the comedian in the film played by Sashiro Zameda, who already has a following and is like really on the rise, right? And she actually interacts with this, with this other crappy comedian named Miles Manderville, who played by Kyle Mooney. And so look, Miles Manderville is like Kurt if Kurt wasn't violent, like someone who's really oblivious to like how desperately they want to be um, relevant and you know vi go viral and is using everything in their power like you know the fact that he organizes this comedy night or knows the people at Comedy Central or something as like a weird way to like get leverage or clout chase Jesse you know so he does all sorts and he tries to hook up with her all this shit because he's like he's basically the same as Kurt but not violent so right. Jesse is I mean I mean this is part of her whole stand-up spoiler alert she's the same as Kurt it's just that she's found ways um, through her comedy and through her actual skill set to get a following. Whereas Kurt has no skills, you know, Kurt, right. Kurt is bad at all this stuff. Kurt is inept. Kurt is trying to emulate like a hundred other influencers that he sees in his feed every day with no real it factor, no real, you know, like unique talents. So, um, you know, but 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 the I mean, the critique, especially at the end of the movie and the end montage, I mean, I think it makes it pretty clear that they're kind of the same, even though they arrive there at really different right. ways. And I think Jesse even, well, during the whole climax, spoiler alert, she, uh, let me know if you don't want me to spoil stuff, but uh, she realizes herself, she seems to become self-aware that she is also like Kurt. Well, no, I know, but then, but you know, then there's, there's complexity there too, because some of the comments there are, she's like, I'm going off social media. And then people are like, well, that's just like a way to get more attention saying that you're going off social media, you know? So like, it, it, it's a loop, right? Where like even being subversive within the context of social media is a way of getting attention on social media. Right. You know, be, being heretical is almost a way of being reverential, you know, um, because we're all stuck in this, uh, economy, right? We're all stuck in part of the same attention economy, um, you know, just sort of virtualizing ourselves as brands, virtualizing our humanity as like branded content or something. And so, yeah, but so the audience at large or the audience in the world of the movie admires Jesse, but thinks, yeah. but Kurt is seen as pathetic. So what yeah. is that saying about, I don't know. Uh, well, I think oh, look, look, look. Kurt is consumers, a monstrous character because he does not understand like the 
immoral implications of murder, right? He, like all of us, have been trained to view sharing as inherently good, making a tutorial as inherently helpful. And it doesn't matter what the content is in his mind. You know, he's missing something. And so if he's making a tutorial about how to fucking kill people, that is something that we need to make fun of. That is something that we need to destroy. That is something we need to critique because it is fucked up and evil. It's the worst possible end game for our um, compromised existence in the attention economy. Jesse, who, again, I really don't want to spoil it, is the flip side of Kurt, right? She is the hero of the film. Kurt is the monster. She is the hero because what she does in her complicity, you know, is come up with original content that is appealing, that is diaristic. You know, she shares her life with her grandma and she has her stand-up, which is, you know, punching up and, you know, like funny, quote unquote, you know, there's some debate about whether her material is even that funny, but, you know, like she is using it in a way that's, you know, acceptable, morally acceptable in our society now whether or not but that doesn't mean that she's not also complicit in the framework of the um, sharing economy or the attention economy which is so damning to our souls and our understanding of ourselves and others you know it's a statistical world right and and everyone is a sort of like transactional agent in this statistical world of the attention economy and, um, you know, better not to kill people, better to do what Jesse's doing, which is, quote, unquote, be creative and original and all that. But it's it's still complicit, you know? Yeah. Right. I just I guess I'm just or maybe you're not even making a comment on this and that's up for the viewer to decide. But do, does do you think that the audience in the, the the kind of social media sphere, the public in the world of Spree understands that? Kurt and Jesse are kind of two sides of the same coin or no? I don't think that the audience in the film does, but I hope people watching the movie will. I mean, I yeah, think that's what, that, that's what I mean. Like, it's, I think, I think that it definitely becomes clear by the end of the film. And I think Sashir and I, when we were talking about the character of Jesse, we were trying to tease that out and make that explicitly clear. And I mean, I would say the part of the movie that is like kind of the most in your face explicit is literally her stand-up where she says that she says me and this spree driver were the same i mean we're really giving a bunch of shit away but it doesn't matter it's fine maybe if you want i can i can have a disclaimer that says watch the movie first but whatever it doesn't matter i mean you know i hate fucking watching a trailer before a movie comes out i never read reviews before i watch a movie but i'd say the majority of people like knowing kind of what it is or what's going to happen right. and then when they watch the movie they're like oh there's that moment they were talking about or like, Oh, there's that like cool line from the trailer. You know, people kind of weirdly feel a rush where they like see the thing that they'd already been exposed to or something. And I feel like like you save a lot of great lines for the movie too. Like the, the trailer is great, but I feel like you, you save a lot of amazing shit and you keep it out of the trailer. No, cool. Yeah. I, um, I'm just trying to hit normies. I mean, I'm trying to hit like all the cool, uh, hopefully all the cool people find it on their own. So with something like the trailer, I'm just yeah. trying to like be as maximum impact as possible. So just put all the like most like out sensational stuff into that. Oh, I think that to... was successfully done. I, there, there's there's definitely uh, if I were a normie, I, I would want to watch this movie. I think the su- success, you know, we can talk about it theoretically, but we'll only really see once the movie comes out, you know. 
Um, well, speaking of appealing to normies or just appeal in general, uh, how is the Kurt's World Instagram account doing? I think good. Like, you know, so we orchestrated this, um, like, in-character meta promo campaign for the film where the lead character has his IG account, right? And he's posting all of his shitty attempts at reviewing Post Malone's wine. And actually my favorite reviews is he does one review where he talks about the top 10 influencers by following and analyzes (laughs) why they're popular. And then another one, which he says is so unique, he's never seen it before, um, where he analyzes each platform. So he'll give his review of Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and whatever. So um, those, you know, his really bad attempts at, at reviews and tutorials and unboxings are weirdly popular with people. I mean, I think a huge portion of the audience that engages with Kurt are, you know, Joe Keery slash Stranger Things slash Finn Wolfhard fans because Finn has been a really big advocate for the movie because he really digs it. So, um, but like, I mean, the fandom is crazy. Like someone got a Kurt's World tattoo the other day. Whoa. Um, and, and people that we've probably had hundreds of pieces of fan art made, um, and uh, people make tons and tons of memes, like hundreds of memes made by fans. And the engagement is really interesting because some people show up and they're like, isn't that Joe Keery from Stranger Things? And then some, and then they'll immediately get shouted down. Like, no, that's Kurt from Kurt's world, you know? So there's all the, all the, all the people who get like that. This is like, uh, you know, what they call an augmented, um, reality game or, you know, just a piece of kind of fun promotion um, are just totally all in on it. And, and my big intention, I think, because there will be kids who are more impacted by the Kurtz world account than they are by the movie. Honestly, it's just to make sure when the kids walk away from that account, which will be like the day the movie is released, this kind of will stop being in character um, that they get the message of the movie, which is you please reflect on your relationship to, um, you know, attention and social media and what you desire from these platforms because you're being brainwashed by them to think about yourself in a really twisted, you know, mediated way. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about Joe for a second. Like uh, Joe's performance is really nuanced and uh, on point in a lot of ways and is probably the most obviously a great thing about the movie on first watch especially if you know that type of character well um could you talk about like getting joe or if you had considered anybody else for that role um and how it was working with him yeah we we work gene my co-writer and i his name is actually gene wow. his birth name is actually eugene so that's that that adds to the dimensions of like what is actually real it's like a charlie kaufman has thing actually that, none of, no, we're all all these voices are just one person yeah made. that's the ion pack is you and gene yeah exactly you and gene exactly um so working with joe joe is amazing um gene and i kind of had an image of someone in mind when we were writing who wasn't joe joe wasn't on our radar but as soon as i met with joe um, just felt like, wow, this guy is really special and really concerned. He like likes the script and he's really concerned about what it would mean to play this character. And I thought that concern was really important because on a script level, I think it was really important to me to make fun of a Kurt Kunkel type, like a, you know, like a white male mass murderer. Like I'd never seen any 
one in media or like, you know, a real artwork make fun of that type of person. And I think what happens is, you know, like those people get weirdly, even if they're being like destroyed by like President Obama or the New York Times or whatever, they weirdly somehow become elevated by the yeah. attention of it. And so I just really wanted to make fun of a fucking like Elliot Roger type character because I think people need to realize these people are losers and pathetic and like just doing it for the clout the same way that like a inf wannabe influencers is doing shit for the clout. So when Joe came on board, he was just, you know, like wanted to figure out how to give humanity to this person and also how to make sure it was really clear that there was nothing, um, cool about this person and you know he he definitely I, I i alerted him to a bunch of cringe videos that i like i made him a cringe compilation and he like really gobbled that up and really understood where these people were coming from who just sort of reveal too much and don't get a lot of mileage out of it um and and then you know the really special thing he did was bring humanity to the you know bring a real sadness to kurt and the sadness is the part that I think we see ourselves in. Like anytime we acknowledge what we do for the clout or, you know, just to get a few likes when we're not happy with what we posted or when we take a thousand photos to figure out which the right one was, I think we do feel a little bit of like disgust with ourselves. And that is sad and, um, you know, sad about ourselves. And I think that's w one of the things that Joe was able to make so salient in his performance beyond just kind of like the psychosis and the moral disconnect and the sort of naive um, sort of humor that uh, he brings to Right, Kurt. and this is, this also is, is in the script, I guess, but it's also has to do with the way Joe played it, is I like that there's never, there's not like a mental breakdown moment. There's no kind of mm -hmm. moment where he like snaps. He's like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, because I th when I first saw it, I didn't know the premise, so when he started he, when he just started killing people I w it was kind of like oh there we go like you know what I mean he just like it just is another part of his day it's not like you really don't see, see any kind of snap in him he's just like going about it normally which is I think he effectively plays that and I feel like that psychosis that specific brand of psychosis is, is probably is, is really important to Kurt the character and just kind of the whole message of the movie right yeah, I mean, you know, like that's I not a breakdown. It's just this total desensitization via. Sort yeah, of exactly. It's the moral disconnect. It's not a right. breakdown. I think, you know, a lot of people who want to be influencers but can't do it, but still make a bunch of content that no one sees, probably have a really similar, you know, kind of disconnect that Kurt has. And you know, the nightmare of the movie is that they would take it to a violent place because they know that violence. Um, garners attention in our society, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not about, like, the breakdown. It's about the fact that all of us under the, you know, umbrella of social media, you know, find ways to compromise our morality in order to post and share and garner likes, you know? Um. But Joe, Joe is really good. Joe and I worked together for months before the movie coming up with a lot of the um these doing a lot of these tutorials and reviews and exercises to help him get into character that we then later used in the beginning of the film and then now as the part of the promotional campaign for the, the right. kurtz world 96. you know it's also like a great you could use as a great promotional tool this like jake paul having an assault rifle thing is so spree 
whatever, man. Like, I mean, like, uh, um, I, I, I don't know. I'm honestly like, <laughs> I, I think there's a, when you talk about successful influencers, you talk about people who are able to signal what they believe will get them the most attention while still being, while still not getting canceled. You know, like that's kind of like this line right. that the successful influencers walk where they figure out ways to get attention. I mean, unless they have a, an actual skill set, which some do, you know, so oh, I create this thing or here's my music or here's my magic or whatever. <laughs> you know, a lot of them are just sort of like lifestyle people um, who have found a way to leverage their brand of provocation um, without getting canceled yet. You know, so there's the whole, you know, suicide forest and there's this whatever assault rifle thing. And, um, you know, if you watch that suicide forest video, like in it towards the end, and Joe and I watched this a bunch, there's like a thing where it's like, ah, because this is so emotional. Like, you know, I really debated. This is literally he's saying this on air, like whether or not to do this. But I just know that like my heart's in the right place. So like, I just want to make sure you guys like, like, comment and subscribe on this because like, <laughs> and share this because it's important and it's like you're sick man like you've lost it and um it's unreal. but i think you know like even even now let's say i think social media in the last few months has been mobilized for good right for social justice causes and you know to sort of call out uh, serious injustices in society and i think that's a really good turn for social media but i also am just inherently skeptical of the framework that basically rewards people um, through attention because yeah. ultimately you end up at a lowest common denominator thing where the, the purity and the sort of like, you know, like good moral quality of something becomes corrupted by just the necessity to get eyeballs on it. Yeah. And so then you inevitably end up with a sort of corrupted message. Um, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen um, in, in the sort of fights for social justice that are happening in social media now, but you can, I'm sure I, there well, there will be some. For I, sure. I think it has happened. This is, we were we've talked about this at length on the pod before, but uh, we were talking. We've even had friends who got mad at us for this. But I I think it has because the I while I agree mobilizing uh, social media for good messages and causes is, is obviously a good thing. It's obviously a way better thing than like selfies or whatever. Like sure, but we're also. I do think we we very easily desensitize things that shouldn't be desensitized. It's just kind of inherent with social media. And when you start getting to a place where it looks bad to not act a certain way, it is all optics. And then that will just inherently degrade your message, like 100%. If you're just, everyone is thinking about the optics of being for causes. I mean, you have to also understand social media as something that obviously I talk about something called the attention economy, but of course that's also existent in a larger actual model of capitalism, right? The actual economy. And so because, you know, people have become brands, um, attention equals money. And anytime you have a game, right? Like social media is a game with like stats. Um, likes equals stats and you can quantify your success and blah, blah, blah. People will figure out a way to game the system for 
money, you know, and, and, and I'm not, and that is just the nature of capitalism. And it's the nature of the way that social media has been folded into capitalism. And, you know, you can most explicitly and transparently see it with companies themselves and their social media accounts, trying to figure out ways to be more relatable as humans yep. or something like that, you know, um, and this sort of weird conflation between individual and company is a part of the sickness of um, mediating ourselves through these platforms. Um, you know, because co companies, we hold them to greater scrutiny because we want them to be equitable and we want them to not exploit consumers and stuff. So we hold them to great scrutiny. Human beings are highly flawed and, you know, like should not be destroyed for, you know, mistakes that they make. Obviously, if they engage in um, you know, illegal or uh, highly exploitative behavior, they should be held accountable. But humans are, cannot be held accountable um, and scrutinized in the same way that these companies that have enormous amounts of capital and are incentivized to exploit um, consumers should be held accountable. Um, but these two things have become conflated because we understand ourselves as brands now. And it's a really dangerous thing. In my opinion, yeah, no, know? that's, 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 that's a it. great point. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that, is that a, is that a conversation ender? No, no, no. I'm trying to, <laughs> there's not much to say to that. I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of scary and it's true. And I think we've been trying to like get our heads about like, I mean, just like in a time where it feels like kind of fucked up to even like make silly jokes anymore. It's like, you know, you, it, it becomes like this, like, Oh, I don't want to be selfish. This is for a greater cause, but then you kind of see the flaws in it. And I don't know. It's a, it's a comedy killer is the, is, is the reason that it just halted the conversation there is it's just not, it's not funny. Well, I think, you know, inherently when you approach, um, you know, when you have a cause or you see like a greater good in life, um, humor or satire, or levity can seem um, really um, like it undermines what you're doing, but I really don't think that's the case. Um, you know, there's a there's a moral relativism going on, of course. Like, you know, everyone. That's another thing that happens, right? So, like, your phone is the place where you receive private personal texts, phone calls. Your selfies live there, and it's the place that you post from onto your virtual identity, which is like, you know, your you essentially to the, all the people out there. Now, when we see things on our phone that probably are not intended for us, such as tweets and posts that aren't directed at us explicitly, but they just enter our world either because we follow that person or through a retweet or whatever, we still take that personally. We still view that subconsciously as a direct communication. And so this is another sort of dangerous conflation that happens where we, we take the things that are put out in the world for a general, general viewing and take it extremely personally because it invades our space because we view the phone as our space where we live, where our virtual thoughts and pictures and ideas live. And so everything feels really like a personal affront. And so humor feels like a personal affront if you define yourself through like a greater moral um, purpose and if your identity and what you're doing with your personal space is um, towards some sort of greater cause um, than something 
that maybe isn't even intended for you, but doesn't align with that greater cause feels like extremely personal, like an attack or something. You know, there's all these really dangerous conflations that are going on because yeah. of how, how explicitly our identities are, um, you know, sort of tied to our um, phones and social media. Right. Right. Does that, make, does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, it does. It's like, something I try to like keep myself aware of because we have lots of conversations about people's opinions who we don't really know that well. And I've always tried to put myself in my own place and just being like, well, that's that's just a part of the conversation. That just, that person happens to be like the loudest person in the room on my phone on this particular day, and that's not. We're not even having a conversation. And I do think like having conversations directly with people is probably a, a higher form of uh, of communicating with with human beings rather than putting something out publicly that isn't really addressed to anyone but is addressed to everyone simultaneously. Um, I don't I don't really know what the solution is because the, that emotional impact that you're talking about of invading people's spaces with stuff that you put out there is sort of just inevitable and it's sort of the nature of the beast. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm speechless about it though. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean people people want to have it both ways, right? They want to say like, oh, this is just my thought. Um, I'm just putting it out there, you know. Just take my thought with a grain of salt. But then when something some other random person's thought invades their space, they're like, this is fucked up. Well, it's like you can't. You either have to accept the notion that like this is a space for people to share their thoughts and you know take everyone else's thoughts with a certain like. Um, you know, grain of salt or, or, you know, like you, or just have a discourse or everyone, everything everyone's saying needs to consider every single other person on the face of the planet so as not to offend them. And then like everyone's sort of like policing and snitching on everyone's thinking, which is, you know, one of the liabilities of like what could happen. And, you know, on some levels it is kind of happening and on other levels it's like not, you know? So, I mean, it's, it, I do think, you know, whatever. People are going to figure this shit out um, as it happens, which is always what happens. Yeah, and this is know? like, I mean, this gets talked to death, obviously, but there's also just the, like, dopamine factor. <laughs> it's like... Oh, yeah. You want attention, like, it has a physical reaction that... Um, What's that? Oh, hold on. <laughs> that was a uh, long story. So, uh... What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So there's a there's a physical reaction to attention, yeah. right? That's like part of this attention economy you're talking about. But that I wrote I wrote this uh, part of the PR. They asked me. They said, "Do you want to try to write a New York Times editorial about some of this stuff?" And so I did. I'm sure it won't be published, <laughs> but I talked about that in it. I said, like, you know, like scientists show that like using social media hits the same dopamine spikes as cocaine and like gambling addiction yeah and absolutely like and also i mean power in general is releases dopamine right why do you think people are are like canceling and calling people out all day it's not only do you receive the attention dopamine but if you have any type of real world reaction from it you feel powerful and that's another dopamine hit and it's like it, it like literally is addictive. I mean, I know it's like almost like a lame talking point at this point to be like social media is like a drug, man. But like, straight up is. Well, it is. It's 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 the addiction that um, no one will admit that we all have. It's, yeah. It, but it's. It, I mean, it's super serious, and I'm sure 
we'll be feeling the repercussions of it for a long time in our culture and what we value and how we interact and stuff because no one's really i mean what do you do you if you're jeweling the first thing you pick up in the morning is your jewel um i've seen it firsthand i don't jewel myself <laughs> but um if you're not jeweling the first thing you pick up is your phone yeah, yeah. and you fucking look at it and you see how you can interact and you see if anybody's cared while you were sleeping and like that's it I, that's a sickness. I, I think about this i was thinking about this tweet i saw the other day that says i think it's frankly insane to deny the psychological social and political significance of the fact that for the first time in human history you can be publicly shamed on a global scale by hundreds of thousands of online strangers it actually sure. it, like yeah like literally in human history we've never the humans have never had in the back of their head that literally by this afternoon you could if you do something wrong the entire world could know about it like this is the we all have that back of our heads subconsciously it's never been the case in history you know what i mean it's like that absolutely has psychological significance i mean i think there's like a relativity too like obviously you think about something like the crucible or the scarlet letter or something those are extremely tight-knit communities where everyone is up in everyone's business and um sorry and if you make a wrong move in these extremely puritanical and like very you know um um like ritualistic societies um sorry i'm getting like a weird text message alert while we're talking um you can be destroyed by all of these people that you see every day right um, and I'm sure the intensity of that destruction in those very small tight-knit communities is comparable to what you're talking about. Now, human beings, of course, weren't meant to, in we're highly social, we weren't meant to interact with like, you know, if you met in the old, old days, if you met like a hundred people outside of the town that you grew up in, um, that, that means you're like a world traveler. And right. if you met, you know, and in the 20th century, if you literally interacted in your life with a thousand people, that meant you were probably a pretty socially fluid person. And now the amount of people that we are interacting with is like infinite, it's like mind boggling. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just the new it also, parameters. It also like causes, I think, people to just like be always acting, right? It's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. you can like subconsciously you always think you could be on camera any minute even if you're like not actively but you still kind of walk through life with that feeling like anything you do will be forever documented yeah i mean it's the you know you know like you know it's a panopticon right it's like the panopticon that we've all um committed ourselves to right we we created a sort of like you know prison reality culture where um, you could be watched at any time. I mean, I re related back to um, medieval times in Europe, you know, a theocratic society where you wake up in the morning and you know God is watching. And how many people in that society right. doubted the existence of God? Probably as many people in our society that have chosen to opt out of social media. Totally. You know, most people believed in God at that time and they knew that every single thing they did was on some sort of moral scale um being judged by him now whether or not that stopped them from doing bad things probably a lot of people still did but like you just felt guilt and shame and felt like you were going to suffer eternally right. for doing these you know compromised immoral things and and we now live in a, that world and and you know i don't want to be too hyperbolic but social media is our god it's the one that we believe in that we've all signed up for and in which we all act as a sort of like agent of this omniscient 
um, judgment force, right. you know, and um, it's really um, I, there's a lot of scary things about it, you know. Well, um, well, I was thinking about how I can't imagine being. This is probably relevant to the, even the whole character of Kurt too, but I, I couldn't imagine growing up right now. Like if I grew up with smartphones and social media, I probably would have been like super fucked up. So, but do you think it's like a pendulum swings one way, it swings the other thing? Like young kids are gonna stop being as social media oriented because it's just gonna get completely too much and oversaturated? Like, do you think? We're yeah, I th yeah, way? yeah. I think there's a reactionary element for sure. I mean, you compare something like Facebook, which is made by like an old millennial, to something like Snapchat, which is made by like a younger millennial. Um, and you see like the difference between like, you know, every element right being traced and documented versus a lot of stuff disappearing. And so then when you think about Zoomers and stuff, I mean, they clearly a lot of, have multiple accounts and they have one account that's private. But then usually, I mean, in my, uh, sorry, they have one account that's public, but then in my sort of anecdotal observations, they usually have multiple accounts that are private, uh, private. Right. And so with those private accounts, what you see is this acknowledgement from you know zoomers and stuff that um so being on social media is exhausting and there's no reason to turn yourself over publicly to like such like a monolithic exhaustion and there are just thoughts and ideas and stuff that you like you know you have to share privately so they navigate it in a way that's like super natural very natural to understanding that like you the trace of everything you do um is a like precarious and dangerous thing um, and I think probably, I don't know about this, but probably a lot are choosing to opt out, you know, yeah. just because it's too much. Well, also, we, have so, we have sort of an interesting relationship with that, given that we both obviously exist as people who may or may not have other like social media accounts. And then we started a joke, anonymous one. Anonymous, that, yeah. Yeah, that ironically has probably introduced me to more people than I met throughout college or high school. Or, like I know more people from this anonymous life than I do in my personal life, which is a really bizarre thing to, you know, come to terms with. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, if you think about the early internet or places like, you know, 4chan or even like, you know, like, um, anonymous as a hacker network or whatever yeah um that was something that was really privileged by um people on the internet like the kind of like anonymity of doing stuff right. and you know with the introduction of aol and then later sort of social networks um people started conflating their they, they started saying hey i want to really connect with people like i really want to like meet i want you to meet me the real me the virtual me that i'm making real <laughs> and um that you know has led to this because it makes sense for shit to be anonymous because you are actually disconnected from the repercussions of what you're doing yeah, and you, saying the, posting. you're not held to the same scrutiny because it's like not you you know what i mean you sh you shouldn't be because there is no physicality and the repercussions of your words and stuff shouldn't be as strong. But because these things have been conflated, you now are held to the same scrutiny, but you're our evo on an evolutionary and biological level. We don't really think like that because we understand that, that the things that we're quote unquote saying are being mediated by technology. Like, you know, so it's, it's, it's right. very true. Yeah. It's really weird when I switch over to ion from whatever other account I'm on, I, uh, feel like a different person 
You are I'm doing that. Perfect. I'm doing that right now with the Kurtz world thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm really trying to live in this character and, and, um, you know, and, it, well, and also I'm getting all the dopamine hits of how much more people are interacting with Kurt than with, you know, ever with my stuff. So it's, it's very fascinating. No one cared who I was until I put on the mask. <laughs> Same. Yeah, Eugene, how do you feel when you switch over to the iUnpack account on your phone? Um, I feel good, but I also feel like, what more could we be doing? You know me, I was like to challenge our, our selves. <laughs> what more, how could we expand our brand? Like, how do we do good in this world through our memes and trolling? By not saving all of the investments and actually putting it to work and, and putting together the projects. Like, we're just, we've just been cashing in. It's right, right. We've been buying all the Ferraris <laughs> and all the, um, you know, going on the swanky Airbnb rentals. Yeah, we've been, we've been inspiring the next generation of creatives by... By how, posting on OnlyFans. Yeah, by yeah, how much exactly. money we spend. And, and all that money, just swimming in all that money. <laughs> you know, you have to take a step back and think like, hey, could we be doing something more innovative with this money? Like, could we become kind of like, as a group, the next Elon Musk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've, always, we've always fancied ourselves uh, as the next people. <laughs> and you know what? To Ion Packer number two, this third person that we brought on, who's like such a good ringer, we, w we will um, consider, you know, including you in our projects from now on. I I'd love to get the password. <laughs> um, guys, uh, oh, oh, anything, okay. any anything else? I did have one more question that I forgot to yeah, bring sure. up. Uh, and, but it's relevant to everything we just talked about. So James Ferraro, who scored the movie. Yeah. Uh, was kind he of actually scored it with another uh there, there are actually two composers on the film okay james ferraro and mason ware yeah they did different things but anyway go on with your question well i feel like uh james ferraro was one of the first uh i mean farside virtual was like yeah. very much one of the first kind of things of our era to like bring all these questions of social our relationship with social media and advertising and whatever into i don't know the artistic sphere uh yeah so he's a very apt choice i think and uh i don't know i wanted to hear your thoughts no on for right sure I, I connected with james when i was still writing the script and stuff and i i wanted him to read it and i wanted him to think about if he could make music as kurt in a character and how could that be the soundtrack for the movie and how could he emulate how could he understand kurt because he does understand sort of broken nature of the internet and this sort of like compromised nature of like attention in underway capitalism and um i love his music you know i mean there's some albums i like more than others obviously but um i asked him to do this and he came up with a bunch of kurt songs before we even started production and that was actually really helpful for joe to sort of enter the mind of Kurt, the musician and the DJ, because <laughs> there's a lot of music in the movie, you know, and, and it was really challenging for James too, because he's a really good musician. I said, you have to make music as Kurt, you have to get in character. And so it has to be like that and super basic and super like, like, you know, limited in its palette, but also I need to be able to use it as a score in a movie. And so that was really challenging, you know, cause, cause musicians, the whole thing is that they want to make music that's fucking good. Right. And so like an actor, like, you know, 
Kurt is extremely performative and he's a bad performer. And Joe had to nail that. And as an actor, that's a hard thing to do to act badly. And um, similarly, um, James and our other composer, Mason Ware, um, had to take on that challenge of making music that was simultaneously like poor and right. simplistic and also could be like a 6-4 that keeps him right. really going. Well, that's why I think moving. he was a perfect choice because if anyone could do it, like stuff like Farside Virtual and all the other stuff he's made in that vein kind of take the... Uh, very unmusical sounds and like hears it as some kind of symphony you know so it kind, yeah. of, it kind of is what you're talking about it's like so wait so did kurt is the music that kurt made did mason make that or did, did joe actually make that james and mason made that at different points james made it before um we shot the film and a little bit after i worked with him and then mason made it deeper into production and i think it's balanced really well like i don't really think you can tell the difference between their between yeah. their songs oh, definitely. Um, um and i think it also is like a nice um character element in the movie when he's like i hope you like music and he's playing this music that you've been hearing a score diegetically i think i think it works when it plays in the car it's honestly kind of fire yeah, I mean, that's the trick, right? That it's kind of good. It's kind of cringy. You can see how it's basic. You can see how it's annoying to the characters, but you can also feel it as kind of like music that keeps the story going and like isn't, you, it moves your foot even if you're not loving it, you know? Right. You, cru you crushed it, bro. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I, I, it's nice to step outside of the role as, as, as the Ion Pack <laughs> and just kind of be Eugene for a second. It's, you know, another just fun performance <laughs> <laughs> this is you and gene signing off yeah you exactly okay the movie's, thanks guys the movie's called spree it's uh, august 14th yep and, um, um yep. drive-ins vod watch it you know post like comment subscribe and share <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the way yeah all right all right guys peace big huge okay peace it's Kurt from Kurt's World. Kurt from Kurt's World here. Here from Kurt's World. It's Kurt from Kurt's World. Like it's Kurt from Kurt's World. It's Kurt from Kurt's World. Kurt from Kurt's World here. It's Kurt from Kurt's World. Kurt here from Kurt's World. Kurt from Kurt's World here. Kurt here from Kurt's World. It's Kurt from Kurt's World.